Anybody know what this is a picture of? Now, if you just saying, if you're joining us, worshiping with us via the live stream, you're not in Texas. Texans love these things, just so you know. I had to get used to that when I got here. It's like they just go jumping in rivers all over the place because uh, it's the option. It's what they have. Uh, and now I do it all the time, too. But this is a very specific swimming hole I know many folks here have been to before. Um, anybody know which one it is? Blue hole. That's right. Now, if you Google, there's like 63 blue holes uh, in Texas, all of which claim to be the blue hole. But we're going to say that this one is the blue hole. This is the blue hole swimming hole um, out at Lady Lodge. It is uh, the mouth of the Frio River, a couple of hours west of here, and is right next to their family camp site on the Lady Lodge property out in the hill country. Uh, last weekend, I was out, uh, I've gotten to do this, this was my third Labor Day weekend uh, teaching out there for the family camp gathering. Uh, I love going out there, I love the experience, what I learn from the folks when I'm there. But one of the treats is always going out and uh, swimming at Blue Hole. And as I was swimming this year, I remembered the, an incident uh, that happened the first year we were there. The first year we were there is right after moving out here. Uh, to Texas. Both my kids were still uh, really young in elementary school and we went down there in the afternoon uh, with the family camp and there were people everywhere and we were swimming here in Blue Hole and it, you can kind of tell but it's uh, surrounded by cliffs and what we noticed while we were swimming is there was this one area that a counselor had led some families up to and they were climbing up to this rock out, uh, outcropping over probably it's like a high dive like 12-15 feet in the air and people were jumping into the water. Now, <clears throat> the way that my family dynamics work is that I thought that looks like fun and my wife said that looks dangerous and my oldest daughter Miriam said that looks like fun and my youngest daughter Hannah said that looks dangerous and so Miriam said to me could we go swim, uh, swim over there and could we climb up and could we jump in? And Beth said no, and I said yes, and then, you know, that's how you parent, right? And so eventually we, we won our case, and people were jumping in, and they all seemed to survive. And so Miriam and I eventually swam over there, and we climbed up, and we waited in line, and we get to the edge of the cliff. Now, Miriam's really young at this point, and she kind of looks over, and she looked at me, and she goes, Daddy, you go first. <laughs> and I was like, no, 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 you go first. And she said, no, you go first. And then the counselor who was there, and the staff there are so great, said, Miriam, when you jump, it's gonna be great. I'm gonna show you how to do it. Uh, it's gonna be just so much fun to go and do. And she said, Daddy, you go first. <laughs> and I said, okay. Now, I had thought that the counselor giving the instructions of how to do this was just to make her feel better. And so I, without thinking, just sort of turned around and jumped. Turns out there were some instructions that I needed to have heard before doing this. If I had done my homework and listened to the counselor before jumping, he would have told me a few things. One of the things, for instance, he would have told me is that because people are up here all the time jumping off, the rock has become smooth, and because people are up here in their swimming suits, it also is wet, and so there's a part that you need to put your feet so that when you jump, you don't slip, and you can you know, clear the rock below you and jump out into uh, the, the, the river, which it turns out is not a minor detail when you're jumping off of a cliff. And so I turned around and jumped, and as I jumped, both of my feet slipped out from underneath me. 
And I don't know if you've had this before. It had happened one other time in my life in a car accident when I was 16. But the human brain is an amazing thing. And when you know you're in danger, everything slows down and you think unbelievably rationally about what you should do. Because I slipped and my front half started coming over. And I remember looking down at the water and at the rock ledge beneath me and thought, I'm gonna hit the rocks. And, uh, and 15 feet onto limestone is not, no one wants that, you don't wanna do that. And so I'm like flipping forward and as I'm flipping forward, what I thought is, um, I don't wanna somersault if I can control it too much so that I land just on my head. But I also am, need to pull my legs in, in the air, because the longer I am, the more chance I have of not clearing the ledge. And so I pulled both my legs in, in the air, and was kind of moving forward. The good news is, I missed the rock. I know, I was relieved too. <laughs> the bad news was, I landed at 15 feet jump, smack on my face. And it hurt so bad, and I was like both in pain and relieved I was alive. And I came up to the surface to hear everybody going, oh! <laughs> the pastor just face planted. <laughs> and I turn around and look up, and, and, and I'm kind of dazed, and Miriam's at the top, she goes, was it fun? <laughs> And you're like, oh, it's so much fun. Listen to the counselor. Do whatever the counselor says you need to do. Don't just jump. Miriam put her feet in the right place, jumped in. She loved it. She climbed up like six more times and jumped in. She's like, do you want to go again? I'm like, I don't want to go again. And as we're leaving, Miriam said, that was the best swimming we've ever had. It had opened this whole new concept of how you can swim. And I was just like, my face was swollen and red. And all I was thinking is, I hope this goes down because I have to teach in like a couple of hours and, and no one needs to, to see this. I want you to keep that in mind. First off, keep it in mind if you go to Blue Hole. Listen to the counselors before you jump off a cliff. Secondly, I want you to keep that in mind as we continue on with our teaching series, our rebuild series. Uh, today kind of marks moving into the second half of the series. And so I want to take a few minutes before we read the scripture and, and kind of go into the second half. I want to take a second actually to, to kind of at halftime right now over the next few minutes, make certain that you and I are on the same page about where we should be in this series. What we've talked about is that this, this amazing call to Nehemiah comes. It comes in the middle of life being difficult. It comes in the middle of life being disoriented. And it's to Nehemiah to go and to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And what we've said is, is that when Nehemiah goes in the middle of all of the difficulty of Jerusalem and the, and the destruction that had taken place, Nehemiah not only rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem, but he doesn't just go back to how they were before. He builds them back in a new way that is better than what was there before. And what we've done is we've built this entire series on the premise that as you and I are in a time of incredible disorientation in our culture, as we've been here for the last 18 months, as all of us have been thrown off, that this is the moment when God's call ought to be discerned by us. And that we and I, you, we shouldn't be among those chorus of people saying, when can we go back to normal? First off, there is no going back to normal. This time is going to change us as a people. We don't even really know how. 
But second off, as people of faith, we need to be looking forward saying, could we, like Nehemiah, actually rebuild our lives, rebuild our habits, rebuild our relationships, rebuild our city, not just like it used to be before, but better than before. That's the opportunity that's before us. This isn't just a Bible study of Nehemiah. This is one of the most important moments that you will ever have in your lifetime. And whether we can rebuild in a way that is healthier and better and more flourishing, or whether we miss it, is going to depend not on when things start getting better, but right now in the middle of the disorientation. That our radar is up for what God wants to say. What we talked about is how that begins is in solitude, uh, holding out in front of God our disappointment, holding out in front of God right now our grief, holding out in front of God and saying, God, this isn't how it's supposed to be. We talked about how God will give us a burden. God doesn't give us a strategy or a plan, but he will give us a burden. As we look at all that's wrong in the world and all that need not be uh, fulfilling in our lives, there's going to be one or two things that sort of stick within us, a burden that we have that just won't go away. We talked about how that burden moves towards a plan, towards a call that God has on us when we talk about it with other people in community, where we, uh, that burden is refined in community and we get a better sense of what God might be asking us to do. Now, as we go forward into this, there's two things that I want to address just very, very quickly. Okay, this is the halftime speech. But we've got to make certain we're on the same page about this before we get to the scripture today. And I want it to be very, very clear. The first thing that I want to say about where we should be and how we should be thinking right now is this. This is a burden that is not just saying you're in a really hard time in life, so I'm trying to add more weight that you need to carry. I know it's really hard. I know we're languishing. I know we're discouraged. I know many of us feel exhausted. I know it's hard to keep going. And now I go to church and Thomas going, on top of all that, carry a burden, right? Here's more rocks for you to just sort of carry like, through the day. And that's not what a burden is. And I want that to be really clear. A burden is where something like sparks, even the faintest sparks in the middle of the discouragement start getting lit in you. And you start kind of feeling some kind of energy or passion or maybe just the stirrings of that in the middle of all that's hard. There's a quote we're going to bring up from Irish poet David White. Um, you might have seen it. I've seen it several different times throughout uh, the pandemic. He says this. He says, the antidote for exhaustion is not rest, but wholeheartedness. The antidote for exhaustion is not rest, but wholeheartedness. And we're going to keep this up here because I want to amend this. Because the first time in the pandemic someone said this to me, I wanted to throw a very heavy object at them. Because at the moment, what I just needed was to rest. And resting is not a bad thing. In fact, God brings uh, into creation that the seventh day is a Sabbath for rest. Sabbath is an important part. Rest is an important part of who we are and how we're designed. So I don't want to set up that rest is not right or good or healthy or necessary for people of faith. And sometimes that's what we need. Sometimes that's what you're going to need for, for exhaustion. But what I do like about this quote is that rest alone isn't enough. I think that's the point he's trying to get at. C.S. Lewis says that every person is created for joy. And joy, he defines, as the presence of purpose. Having a purpose to our life. Having a burden is the beginning of knowing your purpose. It's about giving yourself wholeheartedly to something. It's about giving yourself wholeheartedly to something that's bigger than just yourself. That's number one. So I want you to pay attention to those sparks of energy. I don't want you to be feeling like it's like, oh, I've just got to do more. 
okay? Because that's not how we define burden. That's number one. Number two, and I want this to be very clear as well, our burdens as they become a call are not graded on a scale of importance. Nehemiah is rebuilding a city. I'm just trying to find spiritual practices to get through the day. Not, neither of those is more important than the other. I had a conversation that was really important about this. Uh, someone said to me, uh, you know, I said, Nehemiah is trying to rebuild the city. And uh, I don't know if this counts as a burden, they said, but, and I feel sort of ashamed saying it to you, but I just kind of feel lonely. I feel like I'm one of those people that uh, I'm working, my spouse is working, our children are going to school, we're busy all the time, I've got 700 friends on Facebook, I got people I hang out with, but I don't think anybody really knows how to pray for me. And I was like, that is an amazing burden. If every person in Austin named that who needed it and leaned towards it, this city would transform like that. And they were like, you know, it's not like Nehemiah's burden. You're like, no, 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 it doesn't work on that kind of scale. All you need to do is to be faithful to what the Lord is laying on your heart and to be honest about that. It's not about that some people are on Mount Rushmore and some of us are just still with training wheels because our burdens are going to change over time. And someone who might be called to rebuild the city one day, the next day their burden might be to rebuild their relationship with their children. Neither of those is more important than the other. And you've got to hear that as we go forward. So be honest about what God seems to be laying on your heart uniquely in this time. All right, so that's my halftime speech. Number one, we need to know that this thing isn't uh, great, that a burden is, not a, uh, is, is a joy, it's a spark, it's embers of, of kind of a passion and purpose, or what C.S. Lewis says is joy. Pay attention to those embers. Even if you can't define them yet, pay attention to that place. As God lights sparks within us, you have a calling. And secondly, don't judge it and compare it to anybody else's. Pay attention to what God's doing in and through and calling you to do in this moment, okay? All right, so the scripture passage for today, as we move into the second half of the series then, is uh, from, from chapter 2, starting in verse 11. We've seen Nehemiah uh, last week gather uh, supplies, gather timber uh, from the king's forest, he arrives uh, about 800 miles through this major entourage into Jerusalem uh, with timber, with animals pulling the timber, with royal guards from Babylon. The people of Jerusalem would have seen them coming from miles away, probably thinking someone else is going to try to destroy us. And this is the account of how Nehemiah first enters the city. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. So I came to Jerusalem and was there for three days. Then I got up during the night, I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. The only animal I took was the animal I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate past the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no place for the animal I was riding to continue. So I went up by the way of the valley by night and inspected the wall. Then I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest that were to do the work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that no matter who we are, or how we walk in here, we would hear your gospel, your good news would change us forever as we worship you today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So this past week, uh, I teach uh, twice a month downtown men's Bible study. We looked at this passage, and I asked uh, the, the people who were there, the guys that were there, I said, uh, how would you describe the way Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem? And I love the words they used. They, they said it was kind of stealth-like. Uh, it was kind of silent or quiet. One person said it was a discreet entrance. I, kind of, I love that. And it is that. It's a discreet. It is this huge entourage through the desert of soldiers and animals and, and, and workers and timber and supplies to rebuild the walls of an entire city. And yet for three days they sit outside, not coming in, not coming with fanfare, not coming in saying, I've been told by the king that I can do this and called by God, not announcing in any kind of way, but discreetly. And then after three days, Nehemiah by himself, again with no fanfare, just quietly goes out and starts inspecting the walls of Jerusalem. Now, he already has the call from God to rebuild the wall. He already has permission from the king. He had every right to go into the city and just announce, this is what's going to happen. You should be celebrating that I'm here. And yet, what he does is he just quietly for days goes by himself meeting people, talking to people, looking at every gate. Every gate into Jerusalem is named here. Every gate he goes and looks at. Every inch of the wall he goes and looks at himself. What's important to realize here is so simple that when I say it, we're going to be going, yeah, that's kind of obvious, but it's so important that if you don't do it, God's call will evaporate in front of you. Not because the call's not there. Not because the burden's not there but because we haven't followed through on how that burden becomes a reality, okay? What Nehemiah does is Nehemiah takes the time to do his homework. He takes the time to inspect the walls himself. Remember, he's never seen them before. And so what he does is, is he goes and he looks at everything. He looks at the destruction that's taken place. He learns a ton as he does this homework. He kind of says, oh, you know, this is how it was built and this is how it was constructed. And this is the materials that were used. This is the level of destruction that we've seen here. And what scholars believe is that the incredibly important work took place in that because he learned so much that he would not have learned if he had just walked in and made an announcement. This is my vision. This is my burden. This is my call. This is the plan. It was actually in these quiet verses that Nehemiah starts probably realizing, scholars say, how the wall needed to change. How the wall needed to look different than before. How it was it could be improved. How it was they didn't just go back to the wall that had already been destroyed once, but how it could be made better. This is the moment in doing his homework where he didn't just go jumping off the cliff saying, I kind of know how this works. But it was doing his homework and listening and investigating and learning so that when he jumped, he had a sense of not just what he was doing, but why he was doing it the way he was. This is really, really important. Because this series, if you think about it, what we're all trying to do in this series, maybe in a public way, maybe in a very private way, is that we are saying that we can rebuild the habits in our lives, the habits in our relationships, rebuild in a way that is better. But it's not enough just to know what you want to do. But doing your homework, Nehemiah inspecting the walls, allows him to answer the why question. Here's why we're going to do it the way that I believe we should. And if you skip that step, what will happen is, is your plans will not turn into reality. And the reason for it is, is because anytime you try to affect change, 
whether that's in your personal habits, whether that's changing a relationship, whether that's changing the fabric of society, if you try to affect change, you will always encounter resistance, every time. And if you can't tell people why you wanna do what you do, if you can't tell yourself why you wanna do what you do, that resistance will always win. Think about it like this. You can have your, be your own resistance to change. That's why New Year's resolutions don't work. We all mean them on January 1st, but when we try to change our habits, we actually are kind of programmed to resist change. And so we can resist the change we actually need. Think about it in a relationship. If you try to change a relationship that exists in your life to get better, to get healthier, the other person or people are gonna go, why are you doing this? Why are you changing? Why you? And if you can't say why, that resistance is gonna win. Well, I just think we should. Well, that's not enough. If you try to change a church, there's gonna be resistance. If you try to change a business, there's gonna be resistance. If you try to change the political structures of our country, there will be resistance. And resistance isn't bad. But doing your homework is what's critical to understand here's why we should do it the way we do. Think about it like this. Um, I'm gonna use this as an example from marriage. Like let's just say that the burden we have is kind of, kind of leaning towards marriage. If that's not your burden, this applies to other things. If you're not married, this still applies to different relationships. So don't tune out right now. I'm just using this as a simple example. You can apply it to other places, okay? If your burden is, hey, when I look at kind of what's in my life that I thought, God, I didn't think it would be this way, and your, your marriage is, is in that place, um, if you go to your spouse and go, hey, we've been talking about this in church, I got this burden, I really love you, I think that we should change. I think that we should change uh, kind of what's going on. And your spouse kind of goes, all right, I'm a little nervous, and I, maybe I'm interested in this. So what do you think's going on, and why should we change it? And you're like, I don't know. I don't know, I just got this burden, and I think we should change something. It's like, well, have you put any thought into this? Like, what do you, it's like, ah, what if we just like go on a date? I don't know, what do you think? That is not loving, caring, that is not gonna affect change. In fact, it's gonna regress where you've been. It's different if you've done your homework. It's different if you've inspected the walls. It's different if you listen to the counselor before jumping off the cliff. If someone says, you know, I think that we should change and your spouse goes, well, why? And what do you think that means? And you're like, you know, I've been thinking about it. I think we've, got, like, we're, we've been consumed by adulting. I think we're both working. I think we both have careers. I think we're trying to keep the house going. I think we're trying to share responsibilities. I think we're trying to raise the children, the grandchildren. And we're kind of like running a small business out of our personal lives as well as working where we work. And it just feels like we're doing stuff like this all of the time. And I think we're adulting too much and we've forgotten how to have fun. And so what I've done is I've actually taken a couple of steps just for us to try. Uh, we both love cooking and we've loved that in the past. I've arranged for one of those agencies that delivers food to you on a daily basis. And each day they have like a recipe and ingredients and you can, well, I'd like us to be home from work at five and I'd love us to like actually make a meal four days this week together. I think it'd be fun if we create that together just like we used to. And then two weeks from now, our small group's taking the kids and we can go out together and, uh, and not have any time constraints on the back end of that. And I just wanted to see where this goes. You see the difference in those two things? It's the exact same burden. It's the exact same call. One of which is someone who's inspected the walls, one of which is somebody who hasn't. And it makes all of the difference in the world. One of the, one of if not the greatest disappointment 
that I have had with myself in my professional life came out of the fact that I didn't do this simple step. And it still bugs me to no end today. Five years ago, I was invited to a, a gathering in Kansas City, Missouri. It was a gathering that I, I'm not even going to get into why I was there, uh, but it was a gathering that was hosted by the Kauffman Foundation in Kansas City. And it was a gathering of mostly around finances and financial leaders. Again, I'm not even going to tell you why, but I was the only religious person there. And, uh, and, this was, and, and when I say this was a, it was a different kind of conference, uh, it was about 30 people, uh, that were invited. And the conferences I go to, uh, you show up and they're like, here's the hotel. There's a shuttle from the hotel if you want to get that or you can get, I don't know, Uber. You figure that out. This one was like you show up and there's a car there to receive you. It's the only time in my life where I've gone down an escalator at baggage claim and a person's there with my name. And I was trying to act normal. Like, this happens to me every day. You know, it's like how this works. And it's like, you have your car and we take you to the airport. And this is, and this conference was around finances and the economy. And it was talking about uh, wealth distribution. It was talking about in our country the huge gap between very few corporations that hold huge amounts of resources and wealth and how people, especially in underserved communities, have access to that. That was the theme of the conference. Why is a pastor from Austin there? I have no idea. Everybody there had gone to Ivy League schools pretty much and lived in New York, Boston, or San Francisco. And I was like unbelievably intimidated. And the people there were like top executives in the top investment firms. BlackRock, Bank of America, multi-billion dollar international corporations. And these were not entry level people there. I was so intimidated the whole time. And the whole time people were like, are you seriously a pastor? You're like, yeah, in Austin, Texas. You're like, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. And like we broke into, like days broke into like groups and we were talking and the whole time I'm like, I have nothing, I don't understand. I don't know what I'm doing. Finally, on the last day, we broke into working groups, okay? And in our working group, they were talking about setting up this fund between, and, and the amount of money, it was like, it was like, well, we could contribute like five billion, and people were like, is that all? It's like, oh, six billion. I mean, it's like, what's a billion dollars? Like, it's a lot of money. Like, I can't believe I'm in this. I've never been around that much concentrated power in my life. And they were talking about setting up this fund and how it would work, and finally, I had this idea. I was like, you know, you guys can set up this fund, but there are other funds like it that exist. Why don't they work? And it might be that the people you're trying to serve either don't know or don't trust you. I said, what if, what if you all invested in local community leaders, even local pastors, and you went to them and said, hey, we want to educate you on this so that you can help connect us with people in your community. And you're somebody that they trust. And the people in my working group were like, oh my gosh, you can speak and you have ideas. And that actually could work. That actually could bridge a gap. They, they, could, they could be there. And I'm like, I know, I just contributed something. And they're like, it's such a good idea. When we make the final presentation at the end, you should make the presentation. I said, I should. I communicate for a living. I can do this. Uh, you know, I can be smart and articulate and funny and convincing. And I, I got this thing. And they're like, well, you got 15 minutes to get ready. And I said, I'm going to be ready. And so I stood up at the end and these top executives of these huge firms are there. And I was witty. I was charming. I was convincing. I, I was like, you know, you could use faith leaders and people might not trust you. And here's this thing. And, and I was like, this could change the face of the world with the people and the power that's here. And I finished and I had a great exclamation point in the end. And this executive raises his hand from BlackRock. And I said, yes, you can praise the idea first. He said, you're making a lot of claims there about who people trust and who they don't trust. You got any data to back that up? 
I said, no, but I believe it's true. He said, you believe it's true. So why are we talking about this? Let's move on. I'm telling you, last night, as I was thinking about all this and getting ready for this, it still bugs me to no end. Because you might be sitting there going, Thomas, what would that have really changed? The fact is, you don't know. And neither do I. And I never will. Not because the idea wasn't good, not because the burden wasn't real, but because I hadn't taken the time that a 60-second Google search would have prepared me for the most obvious question. I couldn't tell him why it was the right way to go. This day, this week, I want you to invest and continue in this process. There's a calling on your life to rebuild. To rebuild in small ways, to rebuild in large ways. But there is a calling upon you. Keep holding out your grief before God. Keep naming that before God. Keep letting these burdens form. Keep with the process of sharing this with each other. But as you start getting a sense of what it is, maybe, just maybe, God's making me to do, don't start by just jumping off the cliff. Don't start by just popping off your mouth and going public with what things should look like, but take the time to become an expert on why you think you should be doing what God might be leading you to do. Because that's the moment you're going to figure out not just what rebuilding looks like, but how it can be better than before. This is essential, and it's exciting, and it's important. And I look forward to seeing what it is God continues to do as we move forward together. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for you to lead us, guide us, speak to us, use us, and help us to do the work that we need to do to be faithful to the calling you've placed before us. In Jesus' name, amen.